0: Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you for joining the podcast. Of course, my pleasure. So you have a pretty amazing background. Uh, you've gone from media to healthcare. Um, and you know I'd, I'd love to hear about how that transition happened and what some of the most exciting things in that uh, series has been.
1: Yeah, the funny thing for me, what was important when I was earlier in my career, what I figured out for me, brandy was I wanted to work for name brand companies. I like the idea of working for companies that people would be like, wow you work there that's cool (laughs) so so really i I span three industries it was financial services and then healthcare biotech and then entertainment and and people are people and no matter what you're in but they were these have been really exciting times i've been very fortunate i've worked i was head of hr for nickelodeon i was Mm -hmm. head of international hr for paramount pictures Mm -hmm. Um, i worked as the head of uh, employee and labor relations at the city of hope which is a cancer research hospital Um, And now I'm the chief human resources officer for the motion picture and television fund, which some people know as the motion picture and television hospital. And some people Mm. know as the motion picture and television home, but it's basically a retirement facility for industry, you know, veterans and retirees Mm. that uh, um, are sticking with their own, but it's really kind of cool because it combines for me, it's healthcare and it's entertainment and it's nonprofit. It's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Do any other industries have something like that of like retirement homes and planning for industry specific people? I've never heard of that before.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty much limited to to entertainment. So for example, what we are is for motion picture and television. Okay, but in New York, they have one for Broadway actors.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: know so. And that's different. That's not us. It's a little bit of a different animal and the two don't really cross cross-check each other. Mm-hmm. So, And I, there, there's probably a few more that are kind of along that line, uh, but sure. those are probably the only ones I've heard of myself.
0: Yeah, and so how is like media varied from City of Hope? Like I imagine those are two very different roles. Okay, so I went from City of Hope to Paramount Pictures originally. Now you have to picture
1: in healthcare, everything is governed by the Joint Commission and all these different healthcare you know, regulatory agencies. So we had a code of conduct we had an employee handbook. We had policy and procedure manuals up the Wazoobie. And then I went to Paramount Pictures. And they said, what? And they said, well, where's your handbook? And they said, what handbook? <laughs> I said, well, where's your policy and procedures? Well, we don't need those. Now, the funny yeah. thing is, they were just, what, what was so weird to me was the extremes were so extreme. I mean, the contrast mm-hmm. blew my mind. Because one, had to be buttoned up. Everything had to be explained, clarified, followed by the rules because of the regulatory influence. But the other opposite end of that is almost more that employment at will standpoint of we want the discretion to make decisions as we wanna make them. We don't want our policies to get in the way. So there's really not a lot of reason to have it. Yeah, we have a handbook, Paul, but no one ever refers to it. Now granted that was 15, 20 years ago, but, but the reality is it may have changed since then, but you can see very stark contrasts and different kinds of employment philosophies the ones that are buttoned up and by the book versus the ones that are much more freewheeling dealing and they just want discretion to make case-by-case decisions as they become available
0: mm-hmm. and what are the so at city of hope you had all these procedures that you had to follow um like what were the benefits of that you know having more structure and then i imagine there were a lot of downfalls that came with that too
1: yes it, both both are good and bad depending on how you look at it it's not a this or a that it's both And so, excuse me, when you look at the City of Hope situation, so much of it was unionized that everything went back to the collective bargaining agreement. And you'd have the union stewards there reaching out to the business agents at the union in downtown Los Angeles, trying to catch us on technicalities and you skipped a step and you didn't do this within 14 days. Just a very compliance driven mindset, which can drive you crazy. Um, unless you happen to do it right, and the union did it wrong, and you win, then it's okay. Then it doesn't drive you crazy. You know what I mean? Now, so, but that's to me. That was not my ideal. I, I'm not. I feel very boxed in and restricted as, as I look at the two. When you go into an environment, Brenny, where everything is kind of case by case, you still have to be careful. You still have to make sure you're accounting for your past practices. You're being consistent in terms of how you're implying, you, you know, your rules and your regulations but you really do have a lot more discretion as an employer. Now, some people, they say, yeah, but you're taking advantage of employees. Not necessarily, You know, we could take someone and say, we wanna promote you to this, or we wanna give you more money just because. In a union environment, you really can't do that. They're in a wage scale, they're in a grid. You don't skip from one box in the grid to another box in the grid typically, because it's simply a function of the number of years of experience they have. So again, very, very different philosophies in terms of how to manage, for me, because I'm a writer, I always like the idea of having different industries. I worked in for-profit, nonprofit, Fortune 500, small company, uh, union, non-union environment, uh, uh, union environment, non-union, you know, you know, international. I like that because, as a writer, I'd like to see how people compare different ways of doing human resources. It's always been fascinating to me.
0: Mm-hmm. That is really, that is really interesting. And with your writing, I mean, you have a ton of books, super well reviewed. I saw. Um like when did when did you first get into writing and, and what was your motivation behind it? That's a good question.
1: Um, so I got my master's degree in literature and I liked I loved writing. Um, I just kind of figured I really enjoyed doing it. and I was thinking I'd get a PhD. but by the time I finished two years of grad school, I was like enough. went into yep. the business world but still had that 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 yearning. So I published my first uh, art, uh, article with a magazine. and it's the first time I saw myself published with my name on it. And I was like, wow, I love this. So I ended up turning that into 10 different articles for different magazines. And then I, one of the magazines I was writing for, which at the time was called HR Focus, was owned by the American Management Association. And I knew they had a book publishing division called Amacom Books. So my contact there on the magazine side, I said, I have a book idea. Would you mind sending it to someone on the Amacom Books side of the house? And she said, I would love to. And believe it or not, I was fortunate enough to, to, it just happened to be the right topic at the right time. They took a chance on me and I've now written 10 and I'm writing another one right now. So, you know, w- we keep chugging along, but I'm enjoying it. So that's kind of mm-hmm. how it happened. I just had that desire to write and I love to teach. And so a lot of times for me, Brenny, when, when, if something went wrong in the workplace, I would work it through in my mind at night, how it should have gone and turn that into an article. Well, 25 articles later, I had enough consent, you know, a year later to write a book. And so the books fed the articles. And what I learned at work, it was really, yeah, it was really more of a hobby, but I just found it really, really fascinating. So that's Mm -hmm. how the articles fed the books and my work fed the articles and the circle keeps going.
0: Mm -hmm. That's amazing. How has your writing style, you know, shifted since that first book? Have you iterated since then or have things stayed pretty consistent?
1: No, pretty consistent. So, so the funny thing is that the biggest compliment I can get is if someone says, I was reading your book and I felt like you were just sitting there talking to me. And I like that really conversational style because that's kind of who I am. I don't like using the big words and blah, 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 blah. But the other thing is for me, I always wanted to focus on how. It's like people know what to do. They don't know how to do it. So I think the reason why my books have kind of stood the test of time, knock on wood, is because they've always been focused on very practical stuff you know, tough conversations to have with employees here's the 101 so i don't tell people you should say these words but i want them to hear the philosophy like hear the conversation what is the employee going to respond to um how what do you come back with and when they can kind of read through what a real conversation sounds like every once in a while someone sends me a, a thing on my website and says okay paul this is weird but it was like you were a fly on the wall um it went just like you said it would it was really kind of uncanny and that's because I've been doing it for 30 years and people tend to respond a certain way in particular circumstances. So, mm-hmm. you know, I can kind of play that out. And I did the same for the interviewing book, the 96th grade interview questions. It's like, I don't want to read from page one to page 242. I just want to zip in. I've got an interview with a college graduate. Oh, that's chapter nine. What are the questions I need to ask and what should I expect? And then you map that across everything from sea level interviews to sales interviews to recent college grads, and that kind of thing. And that's how I build my books. I like to just laser
0: in on what I need at the particular time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That really is the best feedback of when someone says, it sounds like we're just, you know, I read this and it feels like we're having a conversation. It feels like you're in tune with my situation. Um, and also, yeah, like, is that something that HR people have like trouble with or is there not a lot of content out there on like, there's a lot of stuff on the what, but perhaps not on the how, is that common?
1: I think so. And I think that's across most disciplines, but human resources, because it's so tied to leadership and leadership development. When you're coaching people, when you're trying to grow management muscle, a lot of times it's kind of like, you know, when you go through sexual harassment training, you know, you have to take the video and you take the video and the video teaches you what, and maybe it'll show you an example, but you know, here's quid pro quo harassment. Here's hostile work environment harassment. I get that. And, and, and that's fine. But most people, by the time they watch that video for the 13th time, 13 years, they know the, what they don't quite know the, how, how to manage how to managers step on landmines without even knowing it. How do your employees manipulate human resources and use it as a lever against the company mm-hmm. by setting up the employee with what I call, you know, pre this, 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 you know, um, They go to complain to HR about the manager's conduct Mm -hmm. before the manager has a chance to complain to HR about the employee's performance. It's a preemptive strike. But as the HR guy, I don't know. I'm sitting in my office happily doing my work. If someone comes into me and says, as a manager, Paul, I've got a problem with one of my employees' performance. Can you help me? The answer is, of course. And that sets me off in one direction. Okay, let's figure out, is it a discipline issue? Is it a coaching issue? Is it a training issue? Okay. Second scenario is I'm sitting in my office and an employee comes in and says, Paul, my boss is harassing me, bullying me, uh, discriminating against me. He's retaliating against me. Well, again, I'm sitting in my my ivory tower. Okay. So the employee comes in and now he's got an allegation of harassment, discrimination against the supervisor. That sets me off down a different road. But too many times what I've seen, which is the point of it all, Brenny, too many times of what I've seen is, you know, once the complaint comes against the supervisor, the first thing I do is HR is I go to that person's boss, because I gotta make sure the boss knows what's going on, partners with me, and we bring in the employee in. And the boss, the employee comes in and sees his boss, and he sees HR, and he's like, uh Oh, what's going on? And as soon as we say, someone's made this type of complaint, the first thing they say, well, who was it? And as mm-hmm. soon as you say it was John Doe, John Duff, are you He's the worst performer on my team. I was gonna fire him, he should have been written up. Boom, they stepped on the line of mine. They didn't see it coming. And that's why I say, as a manager, you have to know to run, not walk to human resources when you've got a problem with your employees. But I'm Italian and I know coming from Brooklyn, New York, you never take things outside the family. A lot of managers don't wanna to go to HR. I can handle it myself. That's why I'm a manager. And it's like, you guys, that's naive. You have to know when to partner with HR. You have to know when to come to us proactively. So use your spidey sense. When the hair goes up on the back of your neck, get that hot potato off your lap. You need a partner. And that's the time you come to HR. Trust your gut. If something's feeling weird, come and get a partner because that's what we're there to do. We're there to partner with managers to help them.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. What do you think that is? Do people just not know? How it is to interact with their HR manager, like or are people just do people just overlook that?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny you bring it up. So in my my last book was called 75 Ways for Managers to Hire, Develop, and Keep Great Employees. And one of the 75 ways was I called it the proper care and feeding of your HR team. It's like teaching operational managers what is HR and they are not to be avoided. People still feel like, oh, I only see I want to see HR twice. Once when they hire me. And once on my last day of employment, and if I have to see HR at any point in the middle, there's probably a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so sad. It's like, no, 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 you guys, we are leadership. We are you. We're there to have your back. We're there to help you. How many times managers fear going to human resources? Then by the time it comes to us, the thing has already exploded. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: and that's what makes it so hard. Employees know to come to HR. I, I don't worry too much about that. If they're frustrated with their boss, they'll come. Managers won't. And they will talk to their own managers, but still that sense of don't take it outside the family. We don't need HR's involvement. It's just silly, silly. We have very sophisticated consumers these days who are our employees. And I think it's really, really important that management needs to be as sophisticated. You need to use your resources. And you know, once you bring it to HR, you realize, oh, I'm not the only one going through this or other people have had similar problems. And we work together to figure out like what's best for the employee, what's best for the company. Sometimes the managers don't even realize well, we've got training uh, things that we can give them. We've got educational resources. We've got an EAP, an employee assistance program mm-hmm. that they can the employee can go to confidentially to get help. The managers don't necessarily know that because they didn't go to HR school. Yeah. But a lot of times it's when the manager says, wow, I should have come a lot earlier. Bingo, that's when I know I've got a, a new friend for life.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Something I'd love to ask you about is um, how has your role changed at MPTF with COVID, you know, with engaging employees and things like that? How have things been going?
1: Oh, don't ask. Um, <laughs> so so the funny thing, Brenny, is we are basically a retirement home. And, you know, if you read the, the, the literature, it's basically said uh, U.S. citizens who live in retirement homes make up about four-tenths of 1% of the population, but 40% of the COVID deaths. So it's been scary. It's been very, very hard. And I will say our CEO was ahead of this from the very beginning. We meet three times a week for COVID task force calls. We've got our director of infection control. We've got our chief nursing officer. We've got a chief medical officer. And we send weekly updates to the employees, full transparency. But it's been really, really hard. So one of the factors was about 20% of our population now works remotely, which is the corporate employees. So that was one aspect of it. Another aspect is dealing with the unions and keeping the unions together with us in partnership. And that's worked great. Right? Well, it's the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. They've been a wonderful partner, but they want for our employees what we want for our employees. And we made that clear. And we use them to help us get our employees to get vaccinated, for example. It's not mandatory, but we highly encourage it. We're hoping for 90% participation. But I also realized that they're not always gonna talk to their manager about that. They're gonna talk to their union steward. So get the stewards involved in that stuff. And then when you look at the communication piece, you can't over-communicate in times like this. This stuff changes not even every day. This changes on the hour. We get emails that says, oh, the CDC has now ruled this. LA County has now said this. And it's like, wait, we didn't even put in the other one yet. And now we have to move on to an upgrade. So it's absolutely exhausting. Yet at the same time, I look back and I think it's been a year. This organization has revamped itself so many different times and we're stronger for it and we're better for it. We're doing things that it's like, we, you know, you didn't even know you could do. I remember back in March, uh, it was on a Friday afternoon, Brenny, three o'clock in the afternoon, LA Unified made an announcement to all its families saying, we're not opening on Monday. Monday morning, we're closed. And three o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, we decided we were going to have to set up an on-site childcare center over the weekend. And we did. I still don't even know how we did it. It was all Saturday and all Sunday. But Monday morning our employees who had kids can bring them to work just as a stopgap to help the families not panic. But those are the types of things. Then we set it up te- set up a testing lab. Then we set up, you know, the clinics for the vaccines. I mean, we've gone through so many different lifestyles when we think back to last March when we said to the campus residents, your family can't come here anymore. Uh, at least for the time being, and there's going to be no more communal dining or communal activities. That seems like a hundred years ago, um, but the reality was when the communication is there, and we keep emphasizing what we're grateful for, what we're thankful for. We've got each other's backs. Let's help each other personally and professionally. That message has been the most important thing, and our CEO gets all the credit for that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and HR a little it's bit.
0: An- <laughs> HR a little bit too. Yeah, uh-huh. you got to give yourself some credit. You know, some credit right. like turning on a dime like that is just insane, especially in LA County where the rules have just been all over the place. I went to an LA Unified High School and I ran into some teachers of mine um, a couple months ago when I was visiting home and they were just saying that it's been crazy to manage classes classes online, but uh, it seems to be working. And it seems like everyone has just been figuring out ways to make this work. And we're hopefully at the tail end of it. Totally,
1: so the funny thing is that you bring that up. I didn't know what Zoom was in, in yep. March of last year. And now I am a Zoom beast. I am a Zoom monster. And here's, here's how it opened itself up for me. So I'm a speaker and I'm a presenter. And I got an invitation to do a presentation from Australia. And then I got uh, an invitation to do a presentation in the Middle East. And both of them said, Paul, we're obviously not flying you out here. And we normally don't have speakers from the United States at our presentations because it's too expensive but because of zoom would you consider doing it so i said of course so one of those presentations i had to do was at 2 30 in the morning (laughs) yeah well i don't even remember but the funny thing is it's a whole new audience and it's like how cool to be speaking with people in you know the middle east or people in australia new zealand right from my office at home zoom is changing everything and uh, again just think about that a year ago it wasn't really on our radar screens last February 5th or 4th, whatever the date is of, of 2020, I didn't know what Zoom was. And now I'm finding that it's opening up all these opportunities globally because it's making the world so much smaller. And Brenny, to me, that, there's nothing cooler than that. It is just amazing. Yeah.
0: yeah. Your reach is so much broader now. And for you as a teacher and, and sharer of information, it, it's the coolest thing. I mean, we've been able to just hop on this Zoom, get to know each other a bit and record an episode. It's awesome. It's right. so great. It's great to have you on. Thank you, likewise. Likewise. So one of the things I'm curious about is what are some of your career highlights? You've had the most interesting varied career, what are some of your highlights? Okay, so the first one that comes to mind is
1: at Paramount Pictures. Um, I was working there for about four years when an opportunity came up where they were moving Paramount International from London, from Hammersmith in, in England, from Hammersmith right outside London. Uh, they were moving it to the studio lot in Hollywood. And I wanted that job. I have my master's degree in German. I speak basic French. I know how to get yelled at in Italian. I've always been really, really interested in different languages. So I studied the languages. I got my master's in foreign language, but I hadn't done international business. So I went to my boss and I said, look, I'm not asking for more money. I'm not asking for a title change. I just want to take responsibility for that. Because we had operations in Europe, Asia, and Latin America. And again, it's that inquisitive side of me, Brenny. I want to know how they do HR. internationally. And I want to get to know these people and build my network. And and when I moved into that job, I loved it. I mean, you talk about opening your eyes to all different ways of doing things. But I also learned what was realized is it's a little lonely. Because when you do international, everyone else on the team doesn't know what you're doing or what you're talking about. So you lose some distance there, some connection with your coworkers. And then most of your day begins very, very early and ends around 10 o'clock and then picks up again about two o'clock in the afternoon and goes on till six o'clock at night or whatever. It's, it's, it's very predictable when you know you're gonna hear from your clients, but it's still, it's a very different type of experience. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd share was from Paramount, I went to Nickelodeon and they're both the same company. It's both, they're both Viacom companies. I worked for the general manager of Nick, who was the best boss I had ever seen times 10. And the way he worked with the animators at Nickelodeon was so insightful to me. He knew everybody by name. When there was orientation like once a month or once every other week, the new hire orientation, he sat for a full hour around the production table with the new hires wanting to get up to know all of them, asking them about their backgrounds. This man was a legend in the business. Mm-hmm. Everybody, they came there because they wanted to work for Mark Taylor. And there's Mark sitting like right next to me, so interested in me, and the new hires just thrived. And he would talk about, you know, these are my eight golden rules, and I want you all to know it on day one. I never want you to be surprised here. And, and, you know, he would talk about integrity, and he would talk about ethics, and he would talk about commitment. and what, But those were his things. And he said, you guys, as far as I'm concerned in hiring you, I'm just hiring myself all over again. You are responsible for perpetuating the Nickelodeon, uh, you know, the, the culture that we have here. But I have high expectations for all of you. And I want you to have high expectations for me. Most important, I want you to have fun and be as creative as you can. And it was an environment, Brenny, where it, everyone thrived. Is that there was like no drama. And when I saw how it could be done, that really motivated me. I was like, yeah, I want to publish about this. And I want to become him.
0: <laughs> yeah, so totally. That's
1: how those things happen. It's amazing when you see it done the right way. It's just beautiful to watch.
0: Did Nick have one of the best company cultures, you think, of places that you've yes. worked? Yeah, when we were there,
1: we had won one of the, um, it was vault.com, which I think was owned by Forbes. And it was one of the top 10 internship programs in the country. Um, We were kind of the crown jewel. We had SpongeBob, all these different shows that were hitting on all fronts. At the time I was there, we had taken over from Disney as number one in the kids space. Um, It was really that special. But the thing about it, what Mark had in his office at all times was this big giant squirt gun. And there was a whole bunch of squirt guns. And so he would just take the squirt guns and he would go to particular productions. Uh, you know, here's Dora the Explorer. There's Mark with 15 squirt guns. He's like, you guys, time to take a break. And that's what he would do. And and they'd go out on the patio and and that was, it, it was just, it was fun. It was creative. It was safe. And, you know, that was, you can't really replicate that. Now people will say, yeah, that's because it was Nickelodeon. And I'm like, no, not necessarily. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, Nickelodeon tends to hire more creative types, so you can see where that might be a little bit more. But the bottom line is, great leadership is great leadership, and that shows itself no matter what you do and no matter what kind of environment you're in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think it is a it, it is a cop out answer to be like, oh, well, that's you know a fun company, so they'll do fun things, and that's that. But you know, you probably can emulate. It. You can hopefully transpose some of the things you learn there and take them to industries where it's harder to integrate those things. Right. And it doesn't have to be squirt guns. I mean, I understand that's
1: a little bit over the top, Um, but but these were creative crazies. These were the kids who used to sit in the back of the room and doodle doodle all day, but they went to Cal arts and they got their bachelor's and master's degrees and and they're like brilliant artists. And so yeah. Okay. It's specialized for that, but I've also worked in healthcare. I've worked in an insurance company. I've worked in mortgage banking and private equity. I mean, I've gotten a a, a good feel for what goes on outside of, of just entertainment. And I've seen some wonderful leaders, some outstanding leaders who may be doing it differently. They're doing it their way. But people feel like my boss has my back or, you mm-hmm. know, this culture can't be beat. Nobody leaves. Or when they leave, they come back five, five years later, two years later. That's a really good sign. And uh, that that stickiness element, the ones who leave and then come back. When you see a lot of that going on, you know, the organization's doing something right.
0: Mm-hmm. I just feeling like your boss understands you too. Like my boss is in tune with me and is uh, someone who I'd want to go to for something like that, I feel like is is difficult to to cultivate. But, I mean, Nick, it yeah. seems like in, in many companies that you've been at, have have done a very good job at it.
1: Yeah, well, the funny thing too, Bernie, is, okay, so one of the books I'd written on interviewing was called 96 Great Interview Questions to Ask Before You Hire. And, and where I spend a lot of time is on the front end of the interview. And my logic is this, don't jump too quickly into the Q&A. They're not ready for that. The relationship isn't ready for that. I don't want to talk about what's your greatest strength and tell me. It's like, seriously, the the questions that you want to ask at the beginning, and then you couple back at the end, make them personal. It's like, tell me how your job search is going. What's out there in the market right now? What's important to you in terms of the two or three criteria you're using in selecting your next job? And then you can get to, if you were to accept this job, why would it help in terms of your own career progression? Why does this make sense for, for your resume that I'm looking at? And and let me ask you another question at the end of the interview. I'll usually say, okay, if you were to accept this job based on what you understand now, how could you explain this to a prospective employer three to five years from now? In other words, how would this make sense in terms of your logical career progression? Now, most candidates will sit back and be like, wow, no one's ever asked me these questions. A, I've not prepared for the questions, but B, it's gotten me to a point where she really cares about me. She's asking me about my professional development, not just if I fit the company's needs, But if what the company has to offer fits mine, and I really appreciate that. And oh, by the way, if they talk about that on an interview before I'm even hired, I can only imagine how important that is once you get hired into this company. Mm -hmm. So again, it takes the professional development paradigm and it puts it to the front end as opposed to. You know, three months after they've been hired, one year after they've been hired, or sometimes it never happens that people have those kinds of discussions with their employees. Mm-hmm. So, just a smarter way. It's an easier way to do things, and it gets it begets trust. It's the person who says, "Brenny, I normally don't say this in an interview, but and now they're telling you the real truth. Forget the interview facade and the Q and A and all. That. Right. They're telling you who they are and what they need. If you can do that in one interview, you know how to build trust, and that's a really, really important." Because they make themselves vulnerable in a healthy sense, and they're willing to show you who they really are, because you've
0: done the same as the employer. And to lead it with that organic uh, arc, it also helps you as the employer uncover what this person is actually like, instead of them having their recited, uh, you know, script that they're about to tell you for, you know, where they went to school and what they studied and things like that, like, and what their strengths are, uh, instead, they can actually, you know, peel back the layers and understand this person who you may be working with. Yeah, you're exactly right.
1: Right. For get away from the, give me an example of a time. Like, okay. I, we all know what a behavioral interview question is. Is that getting to the real core of the person? And it's hard to do that unless you've established a rapport and made it safe for them to make themselves vulnerable, to be who they really are. That's the way you build a relationship with a new hire. And that's the way you hire better people, generally speaking, because you're getting to interview the real person and not the facade person, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's amazing. Thank you for sharing it. And it seems like this has been a major theme for you, which is being organic. I mean, I've just had a blast chatting with you, like being organic, Likewise. being natural. So thank you for joining. I really appreciate it, Paul.
1: No, it's my pleasure. And it's, you know, it's fun. Leadership isn't that hard. But a lot of times, one of the questions I ask, Brenny, when I'm doing like my executive coaching stuff is, would you want to work for you? And you'd be surprised <laughs> that yeah. they look at you like, uh, well, I sometimes, I don't know they need to kind of go through that soul searching a little bit. I think what's really important is you're not meant to be perfect. No one's a perfect employee. No one's a perfect leader, but the reality becomes if you change your sponsoring thought about who you choose to be. For me, my example has always been, think about your favorite boss and what made that person your favorite boss. And when I do that in a group, you'll see people raise their hands and they'll say, he was someone who trusted me. She challenged me to do things I never even thought I can do. Um, He always made me feel like my opinion was important and was valued. Um, Those kinds of things are not the person's doing this. It's the person's being this. It's who that leader is. It's their character. So you don't have to do anything to motivate your employees. We're all chasing our tails in society, figuring out what do I do? Quick, do something. When the reality is the best leaders, just be. They're just a certain way. They care. They're authentic. They're selfless when you put that selfless leadership together into into someone who genuinely cares about the people, everyone thrives. Um, I'm not saying you don't need to have sharp teeth and there's leadership defense as well as leadership offense, but but the reality is if you can find it in yourself to say, I wanna be someone's favorite boss. I wanna be someone who people say, yeah, I wanna work for that Paul Falcone. Um, How do I get to on his team? That idea of people development and team building is probably if not the most critical, one of the most critical aspects of leadership. It's it's basically your communication and your team building abilities. So Mm -hmm. it's a great investment in anyone's career.
0: Right, right. The full circle on management and leadership is just be natural and get along with people and then you're on your way. Right, right. Awesome. Well, Paul, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining and and giving us so much knowledge here. I really appreciate it.
1: No, It's my pleasure, Brenny. Hopefully we can do it again. This is fun. Thank you. Sure.